I've thought in my old age that maybe I should have become an environmental reporter, but I just never switched to that side because I feel like some of the environmental reporters are more advocates than objective reporters. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we continue our TXU at 10 series with a look from the journalist's perspective. And if you have not listened to my introduction episode, be sure to check that out so our conversation in this podcast makes more sense. I would argue that the media drove TXU toward this buyout. Without a public response to the planned coal expansion in 2006, TXU would have built its 11 planned coal-fired units and added that capacity to the Texas grid. However, as we have discussed, the plan faced tremendous opposition, and TXU became a ripe target for acquisition, which was announced in early 2007. The opposition portrayed in the media came from city leaders like Dallas Mayor Laura Miller, business leaders, the gas industry, state lawmakers, and environmentalists. There were precious few voices supporting the coal expansion, barring TXU's communications team. You don't need an op-ed to sway a reader's opinion. The comments in objection articles can do that just as effectively. You'll remember in my first episode in this series, Tom Kleckner recalled how he was forbidden from answering calls from reporters during the weekend after the buyout was announced. Reporters still ran stories regardless. Only the voices heard in those articles were from environmentalists and former opponents of the expansion. I've thought a lot about this tactic and how wise it was not to give the company a voice during a critical time. But if you look at the media coverage the day after the buyout was leaked, it was strangely positive for the company. I'll cite the article that first described Jim Marston's meeting with the buyers in San Francisco, where he and the environmental community successfully lobbied the buyers for significant demands. Page 1A, Dallas Morning News, Sunday, February 25th, 2007. Jim Marston is the only one quoted, and he says... It really is, I think, a watershed moment in America's fight against global warming. He goes on, The fact that it's a Texas company doing this as opposed to lobbying for delays is a big deal. Here's an environmentalist speaking positively about a utility that had wanted to build nearly a dozen coal plants. They'd still build three units. Perhaps the grand powers that be, far higher up the food chain than I had been, knew that giving all the press to the opposition, who was now speaking favorably, was a communications win for both TXU and the buyers. Whoa. Back to Tom Kleckner, still left with the phone buzzing in his hand. You'll remember that a Reuters reporter, Eileen O'Grady, gave him a trophy for not giving in. Today, we're interviewing Eileen O'Grady. Eileen was an energy reporter, so her beat was a little different than a paper like the Dallas Morning News. So was her style and audience, much more industry savvy and business focused. We spoke a lot about what makes a good energy reporter and some of the shortcomings she sees in today's young journalists. I also appreciated her insights on one of the big conflicts in this series, energy reliability versus environmental costs. I had never met Eileen until this interview. I reached out because I thought she'd get a kick out of the story Tom Kleckner told in the earlier episode. She's the only one I've interviewed who's heard the other interviews, so bear that in mind. So, 
When I needed a reporter side of the series, I reached out to her. She recently retired and told me she was busy unpacking at her new place in Florida. I asked if she would mind taking a break, and she thankfully obliged. And this also marks a milestone for this podcast, my first female interview. When you've had more guests named Tom than women, you know you have issues. Trust me, I'm working on it, and I hope you enjoy my interview with Eileen O'Grady. We're here with Eileen O'Grady. At the time, you were a reporter for Reuters. And what were some of the first stories you remember writing about TXU? I have been covering power since the late 90s. Started with Dow Jones and worked for a few people and started at Reuters in 2006, mostly focusing on ERCOT and the Southeast. So wrote a lot about TXU and the transition, stranded costs. Of course, they didn't do that, but how their approach to deregulation in Texas as opposed to, say, what Houston Industries did by breaking up and what the other companies did. I remember when John Wilder came because he was quite a bit different from Earl Nye, but a first story I don't remember. What was your relationship with the communications team at TXU? Friendly? Accommodating? Yes, I would say they were very PR and media focused. Some of their folks came from media and even when you knew they weren't going to answer your question or they wouldn't want to, they would generally call you back, find out what you were asking and explain to you maybe why they couldn't answer that question today, maybe why they would never answer it. So I felt like I had a good working relationship with their communications department. You said you covered the entire electric market in Texas and the deregulated market. Our story really picks up in April 2006 following that rolling blackout. There was a spike in energy prices at the time. And then it was getting reported a lot about this reserve demand being short as soon as 2008, two years later. Was this shortfall in perceived energy demand taken seriously by the media? How did you remember reporting it? I don't think the general media, they just really don't understand. The energy reporters did. I always tried to explain in stories why this was important, even though I was writing for a wire service that was not aimed at mom and pop because energy is just not very well understood. I don't think the companies have done a great job in explaining themselves and the grid operator had done a very good job up until then. That was kind of a strange little thing that happened, but as we know, Murphy's Law rules, so things did happen and they had that little rolling blackout. That was kind of the first test, but people really, media really didn't understand how electricity works, in my opinion. And this gets us to the expansion that was announced shortly after that blackout in April. And TXU rolled out a couple of company lines about this. One of them was that the overall emissions, not counting carbon dioxide, of course, of these 11 new coal-fired units reduction would be 20%. What did you make of that assertion? Did you buy it? Was there maybe some questions you had about it? What did you think about that? Unfortunately, I'm not a scientist and can't really do the math on that. But it basically showed how dirty their existing plants were, that you could add some plants and be 20% less. But it was a pretty big statement to make that you could add all those plants and still have less pollutants. But it basically just showed how they had not really cleaned up the older plants, Big Brown and the others. So how did you handle that in stories? I don't think I ever really challenged it because I was not an expert. I probably let some of the environmentalists challenge it in a story or two, but I never really delved into that, I'm afraid. The other message that TXU was making, and this was what Tom Kleckner and Tom Stewart, they were really pushing was, look, there's a big economic message here. And look, there is a shortfall in energy coming. So building these coal plants is going to bring jobs to a lot of areas that really need them. They aren't building plants in DFW or Austin. What did you make of the economic? economic message. Do you remember reporting a lot of that? 
Yes, I was mostly focused on what it would add to the market in the reserve margin. I really did focus a lot on the reserve margin. The grid operator would come out with their annual outlook or a couple of times a year, and they always played it as rosy as they could because they didn't want to worry people. But when you looked out at the future and the way electric demand was growing in Texas at the time, it was quite scary. I really focused on the reserve margin and how these plants were needed for the reserve margin. Because like I said, I'm writing for an energy market audience, not necessarily a local paper with the economic development angle. And look, TXU was not the only company building coal plants at the time. 11 units were TXUs, maybe six or seven more were from other companies. Do you think that that put a target on TXU's back? Oh, that's a good question. It was unheard of. So yes, in that way that they were just going all out and just to be focused on coal in a big, big way. It was just a huge bet on coal. So it definitely did in the environmental groups and people who had health concerns made it easy because it was such a huge expansion. One of the other companies, I bring this company up a lot in this series is NRG. It seemed that NRG was the counterbalance to TXU. NRG was big into gasification technology, for instance, clean coal. Do you think that NRG was getting played as the white hat to TXU's black hat? At the time, I didn't really see it that way. To me, they would not make too many comments. People did compare them with their strategy, but they really wouldn't come out and say too much evil. Behind the scenes, they might have been saying things about it, but I'm sure they just didn't want to see that much new generation come onto the market in a short time because they knew what it would do to energy prices. And so then we get into the debate and the opposition. And and I've talked to Jim Marston with environmental defense. He really led an effort on the environmental side about this. Give us a sense of what that was like at the time, how much blowback was really going on. I mean, they did an excellent job in rallying people and playing the coal plants as really dirty. And like I said, I think it just plays into the general lack of knowledge of how energy and electricity works and how hard it is to keep the lights on and how hard it is to get a barrel of oil out of the ground. And you can do it cleanly and try to do it as the best way you can, but it's a very challenging business. And I was really looking at the future of how we're going to keep the lights on because we love our air conditioning in Texas and a blackout would not be a good thing. Do you feel that maybe some of that reliability message was getting lost in favor of the environmental one? Yes, because the grid operator doesn't want to scare people. Until the blackout of 2011, you know, they always say, we can handle it, we can handle it, we can handle it. And they do a fabulous job, but demand was growing really quickly and it certainly would have been an issue had we kept growing at that pace. Nobody really wants to scare people. So the reliability issue, I think, did take second fiddle to the environmental issues. But global warming and asthma and bad health is okay. I mean, I think you have to balance it. I was also looking at California. California, and I asked their grid operator who was speaking in Houston once, so you're going to spend $50 billion or some huge amount to get 30% of the carbon out of the industry that only contributes 30% of your problem. And he's like, yes. And I'm just like, that just seemed so far the other way to me that you would spend so much money to make such little impact 
impact overall. So it just depends on the market. That's the way California went. There's lights are still on, but just to me, it had to be some sort of a balance in there of environment and the cost because we in Texas use twice as much electricity as the average U.S. consumer. And I can say firsthand, I lived out in California one summer when I was in school and we were staying in an apartment. It was like, yeah, we're not going to have air conditioning there. It's like, what? We're going to die. You know, (laughs) didn't worry about it. San Diego's breezy. was beautiful. Let's talk about the buyout. This is February 2007. What was your initial reaction to that buyout? Some of the same people were involved that were involved in NRG's purchase of the Texas Genco assets, the power plants around Houston. Those bankers and private equity folks just made a killing on that deal. So I think the folks were trying to see if lightning could strike twice and if they could make another killing buying these power plants in North Texas. But I don't think they really understood what shape they were in, and they definitely didn't understand the commodity cycle. As far as the reaction for TXU, did you see that this was probably inevitable? Was this a surprise to you? It was a surprise to me. I'd heard just a few days before the deal was announced that TXU had canceled the order for eight boilers, the boilers that were needed for the new coal plants. So I was chasing that fast and fiercely, trying to confirm it to get a story out. So I knew that something was about to break because the opposition was fierce. The legislature, by that time, people did not want to see eight coal plants. And when I heard the boiler contract had been canceled, I knew that something was about to give, but I did not ever think it would be a buyout. That was a surprise to me. Did TXU give you a response for why they'd canceled those orders? I had not asked them yet because I was trying to confirm it so that I would be ready for their answer. Do you remember how you came across that information? I believe a man who was developing gas plants told me. He didn't really have a dog in the fight, but the company that was supplying the boilers would not tell me. But I was just trying to confirm that story when the deal was leaked. I never did do that. That would have been a huge scoop. That would have basically unmasked the whole thing, wouldn't it? Really? Something would have definitely been up. Yeah. So now we're hearing the other side of the story. And you heard Tom Kleckner's interview uh, where he said that the buyout is announced. A weekend is going by. TXU finally started making statements that following Monday. Uh, Environmentalists seem to have carte blanche to say whatever they wanted, even though they'd been working with the buyers. But the communications team basically had to lock it up. He said that later on you gave him a trophy. Tell us your end of that story, Eileen. That was a very strange weekend because, like I said, they always called you back. And that weekend, they didn't return phone calls. They didn't return emails. It was very strange. Although I learned later that I think that was a KKR thing, that they had done the same thing when they bought Texas Genco assets, that they'd put everybody on lockdown. But I didn't know that at the time. Later on, after that was all over, I got a colleague in California to send me some sort of little thing that was like a little Oscar or something. And I gave Tom this little thing that said, best performance by a PR person for his pretending not to know that that deal was about to be announced. I figured he did know, but apparently... Maybe they did not know. You heard his interview. It was excruciating for him. Right. And it was very strange because there were a lot of people to call and nobody would even admit that they got your question. Because the thing is, when you're writing a story, you need to know that your question at least got through to the company. Let's talk about this more in a a larger sense about this tack. Do you think it's wise to ignore media requests from reporters? I'm stunned that companies ignore questions from reporters. It happens all the time. I was a longtime reporter. It always amazed me that somebody wouldn't even call you back to find out what your question is, but it certainly happens. Why would you think that would be a smart thing to do? I assume they think a story won't happen. If they don't call you back, the story won't appear. 
But it just gets worse, right? You know, it just gets worse. So, <laughs> The buyers scrapped plans for the coal plant, something that you were going to basically scoop. And then they were also agreed to build a calcification plant. And I talked to Tom about this and this reversal on position coming from the communications team. And they said that that was agonizing. It's like, okay, this is why we need the plants. This is what is important. And then they had to basically reverse course. As a reporter, do you think that made it more difficult for them to be perceived as trustworthy? Utilities, I've learned universally, are not trusted by the public. It made it made made a little worse, but most of the public are very skeptical about utilities and rates anyway. And so I don't know. One of the things that Tom Stewart said was he was discussing Laura Miller and then Bill White to add a little bit of a Houston color to it. Both of those mayors got involved in the coal fight. What did you make of that involvement? Laura Miller, I didn't understand too well. Since her husband had been so involved in the deregulation fight in 2002 in the legislature and getting deregulation approved, it was kind of interesting. But TXU had made a lot of enemies. John Wilder was not thought of well in the legislature. And so the buyout group was perceived as change definitely was what those folks wanted. So then what did you think about that? Here's the woman who fought coal more than anyone and I think is even still representing a company that was building a clean coal plant. You know, supposedly a clean coal plant, but that project's just probably not ever going to happen. So I don't really understand that. In a larger sense, do you think the TXU coal expansion was a seminal point the way the nation looks at coal? They were pretty much the poster child for too much coal going way overboard toward coal. So I think it was a pretty big point. And when they backtracked, it gave a lot of groups a lot of ammunition to go fight every little coal plant all over the country because nobody was going to build eight coal plants. Did you understand their reasoning behind building the coal plants? Coal was cheap. Gas was super expensive at that time. It was pure greed and pure profit. If they could sell coal-fired generation at natural gas prices, they were just carting money to the bank. Eventually, gas prices did go down in a big way from fracking. So let's talk a little bit about that. I think a lot of people look at this in hindsight and go, well, why didn't they see the fracking boom happen? Because this is 2007. Fracking really kicked up about a year later. You guys were covering that, right? Tell me about your first exposure to fracking and what your impression was on that. And Did you see what eventually would happen, which is it would just bottom out gas prices? I think you mentioned that Chesapeake was behind some of the opposition to the TXU coal plants. And fracking was growing, but I don't think anybody, well, I didn't because I wasn't focused on natural gas, but to see the amount of gas that they could pull out, I'm sure even Chesapeake didn't realize what all their fancy financing options would do to the price of gas. They certainly didn't want to see gas prices tank the way they did. So I think there again, that was kind of the goose that laid the golden egg. They went too far in their efforts as well, just overproducing. Talking a little bit about your role as a reporter and yeah, I know you're more of a business reporter and a newspaper reporter. Do you think it's easier for environmentalists to be portrayed in a favorable light than a utility or trade association? Yes, I do, because like I mentioned, there's a lot of distrust of utilities in the public eye because bad stories over time and you only hear about rates going up. And so the environmentalists, I think, do have an easier time getting sympathy from reporters. I've thought in my old age that maybe I should have become an environmental reporter and possibly would have had a different kind of career, but I just never switched. (laughs) 
to that side because I feel like some of the environmental reporters are more advocates than objective reporters. And I've always just kind of wanted to stay on the business side and the economic side. But I think the environmental groups do have an easier time of it. And they know how to play the media. They know how to get them out. And old stodgy utilities don't really know how to do that. And look, I got to hand my hat to them because the environmental groups, they make themselves extremely accessible. Jim Marston said, hey, you want me to call you on my vacation in Italy to do your podcast? I was like, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll just wait till you get home. Not to be too cynical here, but environmental groups also have to have causes to continue their fundraising efforts. So do you think that sometimes journalists don't evaluate their motives with enough scrutiny? You always need to look at why and think about why is somebody telling me this. I think a lot of young journalists don't do that. I got tired of Sierra Club taking credit for every coal plant that wasn't built. Many coal plants were never going to be built, especially when the economics turned. And yet they continue to count every coal plant as one that they beat. But you're right, they do have their causes and they need to continue their work and find ways to raise money. And this gets us to what we're seeing in the media today. Trump, I think, has really taken on the media to a new level. I think that most people who would identify themselves as more conservative leaning have issues with some of the ways that the media at large, you know, I'm a little bit right of center. And I would say that I don't think that the media is necessarily for the left, but it feels like they give the left more of a pass more so than conservatives. I know you worked at Reuters as more of a business reporter, but What's your take on, is the media biased to the left? Well, I'm not biased to the left. Like I said, I've been a business reporter. I wrote about banking industry in Texas until there were no more banks standing. I think Trump is just simply a marketing genius, and the media really doesn't know how to cover that. He distracts the media. He's really a new critter, and we really don't know how to cover him very well. Tom Stewart, one of our consultants, he was our second interview, said that he can appreciate how many stories are portrayed as David versus Goliath dynamics, little guy versus big guy. And so TXU would be the Goliath and say like environmental groups would be the David in this situation. I sometimes would characterize that though as lazy journalism. What do you think about that? Do you think that that dynamic gets played a little bit too too much in journalism. And like you said, don't you think there needs to be a little bit more scrutiny to these um, things? Why, yes. You need to understand why people are telling you things. And it's easy to go with the story that says the coal plant made my kids sick. My hay died and I couldn't feed my cows. You just hear the plethora of excuses and horrible things that a coal plant or whatever they're against does to the community. So that's really just easy journalism. But they need to look a little further at why are people telling you this? You're retired now. Say you go down to a journalism class, what are some of the things you think need to be stressed more that you think that journalists today just really could use a handle on? Yeah, I went to North Texas and I have talked to them a little bit about getting a little more energy knowledge into their journalism students before they put them out there. Because, of course, Denton was one of the towns that went against fracking. And I read a little bit in the student paper and we just had a hoot because it was just all the things that you don't understand. So as a reporter, you need to understand a little bit more about what you're writing about. Do some work so you understand a little bit. I know people are not going to be energy experts, but you can do a little bit of work and talk to both sides before you start asking questions and before you take everything at face value. But the main thing is to always understand why someone's telling you something. What is their motivation? You mentioned the stories that you're reading. What's some of the mistakes that you were seeing? The fracking stories really pulled those out about the horrible things that fracking was being accused of doing, ruining 
drinking everybody's water and all that stuff until that was debunked. And you still read that. Do you think that you and the media help shape public opinion about the expansion and the buyout? Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know. Probably newspapers or TV might have. What about the newspapers? A lot of these newspapers that have opinion pages. I'm sure they did change public opinion. Two more, just really retrospective type questions. You're pitching this story as a movie or a book, and I really consider this story Barbarians 2. You know, it is. What's the compelling hook in this story, Eileen? It's a story of greed. I think these folks were trying to make a lot of money. As far as the buyout, the private equity folks wanted to come in and repeat the previous deal that had been made with Houston area power plants and just make a killing and then kind of be gone. And they ignored what they had, what they were buying, and they looked beyond and just did not factor in any change in the market. They thought gas would be high, coal would be cheap. It's interesting as the 10 years have passed since the TXU buyout that Encore, which was just seen as the stodgy wires company that was not really the big piece what was driving the deal, that in the end, in the bankruptcy, it became the only valuable asset. The power plants were just seen as dogs and the regulated utility was seen as the value in the company after 10 years. My hope is that this little series of podcasts on this issue might be a good case study for especially communications professionals who work for a large utility. This is like a minefield for these guys. In your capacity as a seasoned reporter, what advice would you have for communication professionals about how to handle the media? Some less that could have been learned from this? I think you have to have good relations to start with and you have to keep them open. It's interesting, some of the stuff that Tom said, I did not realize there were so many consultants in the game. So that was out of control on their side. I'm not sure what else could have been done there because things were sort of out of their hands. And from a reporter's side, you don't really know that. You're on the outside. You don't really know what all's going on inside. If you can have relationships with higher up people inside the companies so that you can talk Talk to an executive, that's harder and harder these days. But if you can have relationships with people who are not in the communications area, then you hear what's going on with the company inside and that's helpful. But it's very difficult. And you really have to be a specialist. The communications people dealing with generalists can just pretty much run the show because that reporter is not going to be able to delve very deep. The next day, they'll be on to another topic. And then the other lesson was always answer your phone when you get a call from Reuters or any other news outlet. Please answer your phone. I mean, nobody even answers answers our phone now. Please answer your email (laughs) or text because, uh, yeah, that's the other thing. Nobody even answers the phone these days. Fantastic. Eileen O'Grady, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. That was Eileen O'Grady, former reporter for Reuters. Eileen started at Reuters just as the TXU coal expansion was being announced. She moved on from Reuters in 2014 and covered gas and power markets for Argus Media and just recently retired. We wish her all the best. And we mentioned former Dallas Mayor Laura Miller. She actually started out as a reporter before running one of America's largest cities. In 2008, she joined Summit Power Group, a company that plans to build a carbon capture project in West Texas. That project was announced in 2009, but so far nothing has been built. The Department of Energy also pulled their funding last year. Now you may be hearing a little bit of disdain in my tone. That's because in 2009, Miller and Summit tried to pass a bill in the Texas legislature giving tax incentives for technology that only Summit's project was using. My association successfully amended that bill to include all forms of clean coal technology. Nice try, Mayor. 
That wraps up this episode of our TXU Attend series. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. You can also find me at energy-cast.com and on Instagram at Host Energy. I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time. Thank you.